This evening we come to give attention then to the preaching of God's Word as found in Ezra 1 and verses 5 through 11. The opening of the chapter is seen that which was foretold by the prophet that one even Cyrus should come and be the one who should bring forth that promised return. And we've seen how the Lord stirred him up and issued a call throughout his empire that the Jews would return. And now we read the response to the same in verses 5 through 11. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithradeth, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, nine and twenty knives, thirty basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, four hundred and ten, and other vessels a thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand and four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Thus far God's word. We've seen that the Lord has issued a summons by none less than Cyrus, king of Persia, unto the Jews to return to Jerusalem. This is historically significant. It's not only in and of itself a wonder that the Lord should raise up a pagan emperor to be, as it were, the catalyst for such a thing, but historically it's important to remember what has preceded. That for the previous number of decades, Jerusalem had laid barren. It had remained, as it were, destroyed. The temple not only no longer being established, also no longer received sacrifices. There were no physical displays of those ceremonies which held forth Christ Jesus, by which God would be shown unto the world a God most gracious. And yet here we see the return, at least the beginnings of it. The Lord has issued the call, and now that summons is being answered. The verses before us chronicle the beginning of a great response of receiving, embracing, and responding to this summons. Just as astonishing as it would be if we witnessed pagan men summons the church to go about its work, reforming its cause, purifying its ordinances according to the Scriptures, doubtlessly the Jews must have been startled when it was that those about them, having received this decree of Cyrus, started providing them silver and gold and other such things that they, returning to Jerusalem, should employ them to the building up of Jerusalem. It must have been 
most surely an amazing thing. If we pause to think about that, we should pause to think of our own day. If we survey this generation, we would see the riches all embraced by the world. And we would see the resources for the expansion and advancement of Christ's kingdom to exist much outside of those who are believers. And we would wonder if ever there should be so much as a donation by an unbelieving man to the cause of Christ Jesus. Much more would we wonder if our government issued a a decree unto the inhabitants of this nation that you are to give in support of the true religion. Not only religion, mind you, but you're to support the true religion. This would amaze us, and we might say, how could such a thing take place? Well, that's already been answered, as we saw last week in verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. But what's before us now is not the beginning of that stirring, but the beginning of it among God's people. Notice in verse 5, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, these who are officers, as it were, in the church, with all them, that is, the rest of the church, whose spirit God had raised. Notice that this great work that begins, a work of reformation, a work of renewal, a work of refining and building and advancing the cause of the true God of heaven and earth, begins by the gracious work of God working in His people. And brethren, we ought to realize this. If ever there should be any work of God in our day, it will only be in the same manner as God so raises up the spirit of His people, strengthening them. You think of that language. It's almost as if it's saying the spirit of them was dead and He's raised it up unto life. He's quickened it. He's enlivened it. There they were languishing. There they were with the waves of trial overwhelming them, crashing them down, pushing them lower and lower. And brethren, that's not a poor image because for years, the people of God lived in this captivity of a pagan empire. And this, of course, because of the reckless abandonment unto sin for generations. And so God, as it were, washed the place of His great name clean. And now, He's bringing His people in humble dependence upon Him back to that promised place in order to build up the glory of His name once again. Surely, our day needs such a work as well not the literal restoration of Jerusalem. For we look not for such things today. We look rather for what Christ has said, the advancement of His kingdom. We look rather for the kingdom of Christ advancing and the gates of hell being toppled and ruined. Brethren, it may serve us much good to consider this work of biblical reformation as it displays the work of God that precedes it and brings forth such 
a work. Consider then three things. Firstly, the cause of this work. Secondly, the resolution of this work. And lastly, the resources for this work. The cause, the resolution, and the resources, all of which, by God's blessing, may stir us up to seek such a work in our day. Firstly, then, the cause of such a great work. Notice verse 5, as already indicated, we see these men responding. These men who were effectively useless to such a work before. And in verse 5, as noted, that it was all them whose spirit God had raised. God had raised their spirits unto this work. So those who rise up are those whom God had raised. They're active in rising, but the initial work is one in which they're passive. God had raised them. They were acted upon. Brethren, this is something important for us in our day. It's important for us to see that though means must be employed, means must be used, we are entirely held captive to the grace of God bringing forth blessing. We can preach, we can publish, we can spread about faithful literature, we can talk to our neighbors, we can pray and all of these things, but notice that the cause is a sovereign work. Who is it that raised up these men? It says it simply. Whose spirit God had raised. Brethren, we know the abuses of what some style revivals. We long for true God-sent revival. And when there is God-sent revival, it always sets forth biblical reformation. It always brings forth this sense of we are bound to the Word of God. And here's a reason for that. Because when there is such a work, it's God's work. We don't need some charismatic preacher to play upon the strings of our heart. We don't need all of the light shows and music and other such things that bedazzle the eyes of a carnal world. We need divine and sovereign blessing. And this is what takes place. God raises up these men who will be the actors of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He raises up these men who will prove to be those that reform the outward things of God's kingdom. But let us see and be very clear in this. It is God that raised them up. It is a sovereign work. But the cause of this reformation that is that which brings it to pass as sovereign is also a spiritual work. And so it is that it was their spirit that God had raised up. It's an inner work. It's not only inner, but it does indeed work within the mind and understanding, within the heart and affections, within the will and its inclination. There is a desire, a willingness now to go forth and set their hands to the work before them. And this isn't done by some full-lunged preacher ever putting, as it were, wind before them. 
It's done by the supernatural work of God raising them up. This should encourage us because the arm of the Lord is not shortened. The same arm which so raised up these men to a great work that is here recorded is still at work today. The same God who heard the prayers of His people, we saw this as Solomon prayed, that when they are in captivity and they call upon you, hear from heaven and bless them. Think of that which we read in Hebrews 13. It almost jolts us, but it's a precious truth. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. The same Jesus Christ who has been at work in all the days of the past is the same today. And He'll be the same tomorrow. The same strength, the same power, the same grace, the same wisdom, the same resources are all belonging unto Him. And He is able to kindle afresh and anew such a work as would cause His church to go forth and be reformed according to His Word. We've already labored previously to show how this is a reformation, but it's worthwhile simply noting the same. A reformation is not the creation of something new. It's not the invention of new doctrines or new worship practices or other such things. It's rather the returning to the Scripture's teaching. It's returning to the Word of God. And so anytime something historically has been called a reformation, it's been called that because it's purged out that which has been brought in wrongly, and it's re-established that which is sanctioned by God's Word. And you see that throughout, although under the Old Covenant, of course, with all of its types and shadows and ceremonies, yet all through and through, What's taking place is God bringing again His people back to the Scriptures and His ordinances thereby taught. Now, here's a question for you to consider. Do you desire Reformation today? I'm not asking, do you desire something? I'm not asking, do you desire something good? But rather, do you desire to see, can we put it this way? the coming of God's kingdom? Because Christ desires us to desire it. Think of it this way. When asked, teach us to pray. Among other things that he gave as guides for our petitions, he included this, that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come. That's not only asking for the last day, though we long to see it brought to pass. Oh, what Christian is there that would not say, yes, let it be today that Christ would return. But when we understand the phrase, thy kingdom, fundamentally what's being acknowledged is there's a king whose rule is supreme and is to be honored and obeyed and established. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, yes, we're praying for the kingdom of glory to come and begin, We long for that day, but we're also praying for the kingdom of grace to advance. We're praying for the ordinances to be purified and set up. We're praying as Christ has commissioned His church 
that all things whatsoever I have commanded you would be taught and would be obeyed. It's important, isn't it? At the Great Commission, think of the language that Christ uses. All power, we would say, as the Greek is, all authority. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. It's given to me. What's he saying? I am the supreme king. And then what does he say to the disciples? He says, go baptize, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Now let me ask you again with that in your mind. Do you desire the kingdom of God to come? Do you desire Christ's will to be faithfully taught, faithfully proclaimed, faithfully embraced? Do you desire His commandments to be obeyed? Do you desire His will as given in Scripture to be observed? Whether that is in private for individual life, in families regarding family life, in congregations, in society? Do you desire His law to be honored? Do you desire His promises to be embraced? Do you desire His ordinances to be administered purely according to His Word? Do you desire such a work? What Christian is there that says, not really? If that's where you are, please consider this. There's a disclosure to your own heart that something is contrary to the King. But, as you do desire that, realize this. You can sit and think about strategies all day long. And there's need to be thinking about strategies. You can think, what book is there today that needs to be republished? And we need to think about those things. We can think about what strategic places would be wise to see a church established. And we need to think about those things. But brethren, we can have all of those things in order and accept the Lord work in the spirit of men and women and children. There will be no work done. There will be no advance of His kingdom. There will be no reformation. We're reminded that that which causes this work is none less than God's sovereign work in the spirit of His people. May we pray for the same today. Secondly, notice the resolution of this work. It's said to us simply that they rose up, notice verse 5, to go up to build the house of the Lord. We can simply say they rose up to go and build. Well, what this tells us is the resolution is a sacrificial resolution. It's not that they're rising up to go seek national independence. They're not rising up to seek out their own creature comforts. They're not rising up to say, get us out of the slavery which belongs to us as captives. Their singular focus is to be employed for the work of building up Jerusalem. If you were to stop these trains of Jews who were returning back and saying, why are you going to Jerusalem? Their answer wouldn't have been, because you know what, I want to build this really nice house. 
I want to use my resources which have been given to me to establish a generational wealth to future children and children's children. Their sole focus was for themselves and their resources to be employed for the building of the house of God. Now we see as Ezra and Nehemiah joined together to show at times they got sidetracked. But what happens was God reproved them and brought them back to focus on this. They had a sacrificial resolution not to themselves, not to their advantage, but to build. They were going to labor. They were going to work. And they were doing it for the Lord. They would sacrifice, we may think this strange, but they would sacrifice the comforts even of their captivity. We may think the captivity was only this scourge, but it wasn't. There were Jews who made it well off in captivity. They became fairly rich in captivity, and so forth. And they had, by this time, established themselves in their captivity. There were children who only knew that place as their home. And now their parents are coming saying, listen, we're packing up shop and we're going to Jerusalem. And if their children had asked them, why are we doing that? All my friends are here. I've made acquaintance here and there. My lifestyle is here. They would have said this, we're going because we're going to work. We're going to serve the Lord. That's their focus. It's a sacrificial resolution that not only they as individuals, but with consequences to their families, went forth resolved to build and work for the Lord. And brethren, this is shown when later detractors would arise and say, you know what, pause your work and come down and let's talk. And hear the response, I am about a great work. I cannot stop and come down. If you think the work of the church is a little thing, it will be interrupted again and again and again for lesser things. But if you think the work of building up the cause of Zion is great, it will be a glad sacrifice that you say anything and everything is the Lord's. And isn't this what Christ teaches explicitly? When He says, listen, seek ye first, what? What is it that you're to seek first? Seek first your comfort? Seek first your lifestyle? Seek first your own interests and hobbies and wealth and so on? No. Seek ye first, hear it, the kingdom of God. That's what's taking place. They're saying everything else is second. Everything else is sacrifice. You want my money? Here it is. You want my time? Here it is. You want my family? Here it is. You want anything, God? It's yours. Because my one and solitary focus is the cause of Christ the King. But brethren, let's be honest. There is no way we can say that the church in America is anywhere close to that. It's hard enough to see Christians come out for public worship. It's harder still to see two services held up. It's harder still to see 
the life of the Christian saturated with the Word of God. To see families saying, you know what, I'm going to forego these comforts so I can better serve the kingdom of God. We don't mean it's not at all present. But if you survey these things, ask yourself this question. Does the church in America display a sacrificial commitment to the building up of God's kingdom? But let's get closer. Do you display a sacrificial commitment to the building up of Christ's kingdom? Now that sacrifice will look differently for this person and that person, but it will look. That is, it will appear. It will be shown. It will be evidenced. It will show because what has our singular focus is the advance of the cause of Christ. If we have talents, we want to employ them for the cause of Christ. If we have finances, we want to employ that for the cause of Christ. We have time, we want to employ that for the cause of Christ. And it doesn't mean we have to be about grandiose displays. It means, as we saw in Hebrews 13, show hospitality. Open your homes to brothers and sisters. Bring them in and comfort them. If one's sick, go visit them. Pray with them. If one's afflicted, if one's bound, as bound with them. If one's in sorrow, sorrow with them. There's that display. Prioritizing the things of Christ Jesus. Well, we could be much on this. But notice, as it is sacrificial, it likewise is a focused resolution. These go together, of course. There won't be sacrifice unless there is a focus. And what is it? We go up and build the house of the Lord. We're not going for our houses, first and foremost. We're going for the Lord's house. We've learned our lesson. We have far too often with our fathers prioritized ourselves. We know this today. Well, you know, I do family worship, but... It's been a long, hard day, and I just need time to relax. I'd read the Bible more, but, you know, I'm pretty tired. I'd go to church, but I'm a bit worn out. These kinds of things happen fairly regularly in our day and age. But when it is we're focused, you see what happens is the other things become reordered. And we start to say, Because I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to monitor my time better, wiser. I'm going to plan and schedule. Because I'm going to lead my family, as was said by Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. We're going to establish family worship. We're going to ensure our children are taught in accordance to the will of God. Not just at church, but in the home. And not just at home, but for education. We're going to prioritize these things. Someone says, if we're going to do that, that's going to cost us. That's the point. It's going to be sacrificial. And there may be those who can't afford it. Perhaps they have large families. They need assistance. This then demands the sacrifice of others who are focused on the help and extension and advance of God's kingdom among His people. Because there is the prioritizing 
of God's glory. We go up to build the house of the Lord. But there's something even more in this expression. What was the house of the Lord? What was the temple? What took place at the temple? That's where the sacrifices took place. That's where the priests administered all of their rites and ceremonies. That's where the various celebrations and feasts were most fully uh, administered. It was, in short, the place where God most fully published His grace. And so it was that in doing this, they were themselves advancing the gospel of salvation. We saw this in 1 Kings chapter 8, that this was the place to which God's people would pray and God would magnify His mercy and grace. We see it elsewhere, where this is a place where sacrifices are to be made, the blood is to be spilled, where the holy place and the most holy place were uh, uh, resident, and where God, as it were, showed Himself to be the God of heaven and earth, most holy, who yet dwelt with His people in grace. And so we see, there is the seat of propitiation. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, and you have the mercy seat. And what we call mercy seat in the Hebrew is the propitious seat. It's the seat where propitiation was made, where the sacrifice most fully testified of true forgiveness of sins. And so in their prioritizing of this, understand this, they are being used to publish the good news of a gracious God. A holy God, yes. A transcendent God, yes. But a gracious God as well. They were going forth resolved with this focus of sacrificing their labor, their comfort, their finances for the sake that the name of God would be published as it were to the world. You saw this in 1 Kings 8. When a heathen, when a pagan comes, and there's this little parenthetical, for they will hear about you. Right? They'll come to know you. And so there was this sense in which God raising up His people here in Ezra was also reestablishing the pulpit of His grace which was there proclaiming the sacrifice by and through the ordinances of the temple. And this is something that we need to remember. That as we labor for such reformation, we do so knowing that a pure church with pure ordinances, most purely holds forth a pure Gospel. And brethren, let us not mistake this. Reformation doesn't kill evangelism. Reformation causes evangelism. Reformation doesn't make us insular. Reformation makes us go forth to the nations calling upon them to repent and believe the Gospel. Heaven will show the saints who left Geneva and Wittenberg and Strasbourg and elsewhere during the season of the Protestant Reformation and said, I know I'm going to die, but I'm going to France 
and Spain and other places to carry the gospel that others may hear the good news of Christ. That wasn't rooted in false doctrine and some nebulous movement of one's spirit. That was by the truth pervading the mind and saying, what is my life compared to the display of Christ unto the world? They did not count themselves, as it were, their own lives as dear to them, but were glad to see even their lives taken from them, if by that it would carry forth the Gospel of Christ. I've shared before that which McShane records in his diary. And he mentions the earnest desire of some missionaries at a city of lepers, knowing that anyone who entered in would not by law be welcomed back. That in going into this city that was set up for lepers, you were going to die. There wasn't a vacation There wasn't a furlough. There wasn't a visit back home every once in a while. If you went in, you weren't coming back. And he recorded how there were lines of missionaries ready to go in in order to share the truth of Christ. Brethren, we don't need a city of lepers or some great disease to display such sacrificial and focus earnestness, we simply need a zeal for the Lord God and His pure teaching, His pure worship, His pure law and pure gospel, and to give ourselves to see that which stands in ruins rebuilt. Well, thirdly then, the resources of this work. You'll see this extends from verse 6 through verse 11. One thing we can say is that the resources that would be employed by the Jews returning were provided freely in God's providence. There is something here of a parallel to the Exodus. Do you remember the time of the Exodus? Here these bond slaves are now to go out into the wilderness and ultimately inherit a promised land And how were they going to do the things God had told them? Well, the very Egyptians would load them up with all manner of wealth and riches that would later on be used to build the spectacle known as the tabernacle. Where do they get the gold and the silver and all of these other things? They got it from the Egyptians. Now look here in the text. Notice that it's mentioned, verse 6, all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. It goes more than this. Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and number them unto Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. This is, of course, Zerubbabel, with whom you'll be familiar. 
But the point is this. The Lord, as it were, opens the treasuries of the nations around and supplies His people with the resources needed to go about the work before them. What was Nebuchadnezzar in God's purpose? He was the keeper, the storehouse of the Lord's goods. Now, he wasn't consciously so. He wasn't sitting to himself thinking, I'm about a great work, I'm going to preserve these things, and then in the end, God's going to use them to rebuild Jerusalem. He brought them back triumphantly, mocking the Jews and ridiculing the same and blaspheming the name of God. But God in His sovereign work was storing up those things for the appointed day when God should bring back His people and all that was needed should be freely provided to them. Think of this. Not one Jew had to bargain with his neighbor. Not one Jew had to make some special plea. God opens up, as it were, the resources and provides them. Many of you, as I, will have read some things about George Mueller. And we stand astounded by his clear faith that God will provide. Now, we don't take him as a rule for our all and every action, but we do certainly stand to be exhorted by his example as he ran an orphanage, never once broadcasting his need, apart from broadcasting it to God in prayer. He prayed to God, and what was needed would arrive. He prayed to God, and what was required would be provided. Brethren, we not only have the same God of George Mueller, we have the same God of this chapter. We have the same God who is ever faithful to provide what's needed at the time it's needed. And we should remember that when the Lord would call us to work and labor, He will not call us to work upon our own wages, but will Himself provide what is needed. There's comfort in this. And notice, moreover, the resources provided are not only freely provided in His providence, but they are sufficiently provided in His providence. What is it they need? Well, they need instruments and other such things for the house of God. What's provided? All of those things. They need finances to build and resources to construct. And all of those things are provided. Brethren, we don't have to go and build a temple in the physical sense. But we are called to see the temple of God built. We are called to see it advance. And the instruments that are used are not the silver and gold and other such things. Though finances help, of course, it is the Word of God. It is officers of the church. It is a praying and believing and sacrificial people. These are the things we need. And so what do we do but go to God and pray, God, give us these resources. And we have great encouragement in doing so. For as he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is mine. We think at some security when it says that some account is FDIC insured. We say, well, I don't have the max amount in that account, so I'm assured by the government. 
that this is going to be sufficient. Brethren, by now you and I realize there's no assurance the government can ever provide that will guarantee anything unto you. But we have something that far exceeds what an earthly government can provide. We have the king and head of the church who is above all and over all and controls all and owns all so that we can go to him as we're called to go to him with boldness, asking for what? Grace to help in time of need. He always suitably, sufficiently provides what is needed. You say, well, listen, I've had this affliction and my affliction continues. He's not removing it. Well, think again. You have this affliction, but He's most surely providing you what you need in His resources because as He said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. He may not provide the resource we think we need, but He always provides the resources He knows we need. We go to Him who has a storehouse full of all that is needed. And as we come to Him and say, Lord, here's my need, we know that He'll reach into His treasury and say, here is the provision for that need. Brethren, as we long to see the work of Reformation advance, we may think we have need of a lot of things. But let us trust the dispenser of all that is good and all that is truly needed to give in His timing precisely that which will secure the advance of His kingdom. Well, as we close, consider this. This work of reformation in its beginning is caused by God. Surely this ought to make us survey the scene and see what great need there is for such a work and then lead us to pray. You can see this in the book of Psalms. You turn there, for instance, to Psalm 80, even as we'll sing later, you can see this testimony. There's this earnest prayer because of the survey of the degradation that has ripped apart the church of God. Notice in verse 13, Psalm 80, The boar out of the wood doth waste it. The wild beast of the field doth devour it. So what is prayed? Return. We beseech Thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which Thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that Thou madest strong for Thyself, it is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of Thy countenance. It's all acknowledged to be under God's sovereignty, but then it elicits from God's people this prayer. Let Thy hand be upon the man of Thy right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom thou madest strong for thyself, so will not we go back from thee. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. It's an earnest prayer for God to work. And how does he work in us? 
by blessing us through Christ, by displaying to us not only Christ, but by providing us the grace of God by Christ, that He would quicken us, enliven us, as we could say, borrowing from Ezra, that He would raise us up, that we then might rise and work for the rebuilding of Zion. If all is to be done by God's strength, then let us never cease praying that God would give us strength for this work. Secondly, in closing, did faithful men respond? They did. We see this. Then rose up the chief of the fathers, the priests, the Levites, these are the officers of the church, and all them whose spirit God had raised. The rest of the church. God raised them up and they then labored. Brethren, let's be clear. There's not a call to go to literal Jerusalem today and build the temple. But there is the call for the church to seek the building of God's kingdom. You are summoned to it. You are called with your time, your belongings, your gifts, your resources to employ them to the cause of Zion. Here's the question. Will you be among those who rise up and work? Or will you be merely the one who sits back and watches? We need to examine ourselves in this. We need to pray that God would stir our own spirits, not unto some mere feeling, but rather unto a zeal that leads to activity. I am here to work, to labor, to serve, to seek the building up of Zion. Brethren, they responded, responded unto service. Let us likewise rise by His grace to serve. But finally, in closing, Notice again, they rose to serve for the glory of God. They didn't rise to serve to the glory of their own name. They didn't rise to serve to their own personal advance. They rose to serve that the name of the Lord should be published again to the world. Is that sufficient to satisfy you? Put it this way. If no man ever thanks you, if no man ever congratulates you, if no one ever says, well done, in this world, but others come to know the Lord truly, is that sufficient for you? Is it sufficient for you that others may come to know the Lord God of heaven and earth? If you say yes, then ask yourself this. Do I display and demonstrate that? Is my time, my resources, my belongings, my efforts, my gifts, all that I am, is it showing itself by saying, here's the one thing I desire to be used for, for the advance of the name of God? This will show itself in a number of ways. 
Yes, it will show itself in our financial giving. Yes, it will show itself in our helping to publish faithful books and other things of that sort. But it will also show in the less famous, but perhaps we could say this, the more important work of living as faithful disciples in a faithless age. Of giving ourselves to living as Christians of living cheerfully, gladly for the cause of Christ, in speaking liberally of Christ, in speaking faithfully of Christ, that others may come to know Christ and Him crucified. This is that which brings forth the advance of His kingdom. Let us then, out of a satisfaction to see Him advance, take to ourselves the motto which we find in the Scriptures, even by John the Baptist, He must increase, but I must decrease. We have one solitary focus, that Christ would be made known. If that is our focus, then by His grace as He quickens us, may we labor for it with all that He provides, that His name would be glorified. Would you stand with me then for prayer?